The world-famous Conservation Canine Camp will next be running in southeast Queensland, Australia, from the 21st to the 25th of August. Join us with your dog to start your journey into conservation detection. Visit padfoot.com.au to book your place today. Welcome to the Conservation Canine Podcast, the show that celebrates the dog team's protecting the natural world. I'm James Davis, and in this episode I'm joined by Laura Holder from the Conservation Dogs Collective. We talk about cryptic species detection, the differences between sport, nose work and conservation detection, and the contents of Laura's wine cellar. Welcome to the Conservation Canine Podcast. Thank you for having me on. I'm very excited to be here. No, great. We really appreciate you taking the time. So, um, to get us started, most people obviously know you from Midwest Conservation Dogs. That's where kind of your name is tied into, or the certainly the, the more well-known kind of brand. But you're now working under the banner of the Conservation Dogs Collective. So, to get us started, um, perhaps you could start by telling our listeners a bit about you how you got started in dog work, and how, why you moved into conservation specifically. Yeah, I would be happy to share that. Um, So I'm one of the oddballs that I never grew up with a dog in my life, um, and I begged for it for every single holiday, birthday, made-up holidays, etc. As soon as I graduated college, with I had a degree in um, uh, industrial design, a Bachelor of Fine Arts with industrial design. I got my first dog, and... um, from there, you know, I was a pet owner and did, we're going to hear our dogs back here. <laughs> it's chow time um, <laughs> when we're recording here. Sure. Um, so I, um, she had some behavior problems. Her name was Fanny and she had some behavior problems. And I was, you know, at that point, just kind of watching what was on TV because the internet really wasn't even a thing back then. Right. And um one of the well-known trainers that was on TV at the time, you know, was doing some things and I tried those things and I'm like, this doesn't feel right, but I kept doing them because that's all I knew at the time, like a lot of us, right? Hmm. And uh, from there, you know, we hooked up eventually with a, a trainer in person in Milwaukee and she was using positive reinforcement. And at that point in time, it was pretty rare, um, at least in the the area that I live. And we saw some incredible behavior change. And I was like, holy crap, this is really great. And it feels good. And my dog's making progress. And that's awesome. Um, so fast forward a couple years later, I brought another dog into my house because I was like, I want my new dog to be exactly like this dog. And we all know that that doesn't happen either. <laughs> um, so that was Oscar, my white shepherd. And I had the goals of doing therapy work with him and it became pretty quick. He came home as a puppy about eight weeks of age. It became pretty quickly apparent uh, around eight months of age, right? (laughs) Where he started having some behavior problems again. And I was like, Oh great, here we go again. Um, And to make a somewhat long story short, we got into the activity of canine nose work, which was just starting to infiltrate the, the center part of the United States, you know, things start on the coasts and they slowly make their way to the middle. Um, So we got into some classes in the Milwaukee area and I 
you know, at first was like, okay, I just want to do something safe that is very predictable. I can, you know, not have to worry about getting surprised by an ice cream person around the corner or whatever. And what I saw after being in classes for several months was that his behavior started changing, you know, just as a side effect of doing scent work um, for fun. And we were doing it, you know, once a week at that point. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. You know, at first I was a little skeptical, like this is just a fluke, right? And I'm like, nope, it continued to get better and better. And he got comfortable in more situations and we would start going to classes in new places. And uh, we ended up going into some competitions together and he was successful and we were both successful then, right? So um, as Oscar age, you know, we're in classes, I got a call, or I should back up. I actually started teaching classes at that point. Um, for canine nose work. And I wanted to share that. And I just loved teaching. I was a soccer coach for years. And I'm like, I just love that, you know, team aspect of everything. Um, So I started teaching classes. And a couple years into teaching, I got a call from the Mequon Nature Preserve. This was in 2016. And they had gotten my name through the local community. Um, They had seen a conservation dog at a professional conference. And they're like, oh, my gosh, we want to do this on our property. And um, in the area here, nobody, again, is like really doing that work at that point in time, right? So they got my name. They called me like, hey, can we do this thing? And I was like, heck yeah, let's try it. You know, like <laughs> at that point, that was the first time I had ever heard of a conservation dog. Um, and I was like, oh, shit, now I have to do my research, right? And like go figure out like what what are the capabilities of detection dogs in uh, conservation? Um, so, you know, the process goes from there. We uh, established an LLC at that point, but then quickly filed for our nonprofit paperwork. So mm-hmm. January 19th, 2017 is when Midwest Conservation Dogs was a bona fide nonprofit organization. Yeah. yeah. How's uh, that for an intro? <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's pretty good. And it, it also, it, it amazes me how often I see it, that the, do- the so many professional dog people end up in professional dog work because they had a dog with behavioral issues and they just had to puzzle it out, work it out. They saw the benefits, they reaped the rewards. They did that sort of stuff. And it's interesting you're saying about your second dog, um, your, your, your white shepherd, you know, with the, uh, the sort of, I suppose, the unintended counter conditioning of the, uh, of the nose work, you know, type stuff. And, and it does find it. I mean, oftentimes just keeping them busier, they learn, that there's nothing to worry about so much because nothing bad happens, you know, builds the confidence and all that sort of thing. But it, it is just amazing you know, how many of us have sort of started, yeah, because of that, because of that very reason. So, uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, 10 years ago, if you would have asked me if I'd be sitting in my seat doing this, I'd be like, no, no way. <laughs> you know, it's just, what, it's an, it's amazing. Yeah. What would, what would you have been doing? Honestly, like I, Midwesterners are usually, raised, you know, like find a calling when you're in college and then pursue that career path. So at that point, I guess I would have been at this age right now, you know, a creative director at some advertising and marketing agency. Yeah. If I would have followed that. Yeah. You know, yeah. meanwhile, tampering my love of dogs and all yeah, yeah. <laughs> the whole time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like most people do, you know, they, they force down their passions to do what they think they have to do, which yeah. is a, a sad irony of life. Um, just as, an, as a brief aside, uh, for our listeners that aren't in North America and don't know much about it, Midwest, where is Midwest? What, what are the states? What is the characteristics of the Midwest? Oh, yeah, so they're, depending on 
which Dr. Google, you ask. Um, <laughs> it is the states, I'll, I'll just start with my home state. So we have Wisconsin. So we have the Great Lakes region, right? So we have Wisconsin. To the west, we have Minnesota. To the south of that, Iowa. And then you kind of skate over to the right. You have uh, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan. And then you can even go a little bit farther south of Indiana and, and Iowa and Missouri in there. So um, that's kind of what I consider the Midwest yeah. 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 Fair enough. Yeah. Good. Good to know. My, uh, then my brother's a Midwesterner. He lives in Missouri. Okay. So now, so now hopefully that's helped uh, some people pinpoint you on the map anyway. Yeah. When they, <laughs> hopefully they don't come and knock on your door, but yeah. That's all right. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Okay. So to get back to talking about dogs and conservation, which is what we're meant to be doing. Um, so Midwest conservation dogs, um, become a charity or by a non-profit in 2017, you said. Um, so why did you then decide to move to Conservation Dogs Collective? So I mean, Midwest Conservation Dogs was getting pretty well known there. So there was obviously a bit of a risk, I guess, in changing brand. Yeah, there's always that, you know, we're going to lose the SEO or like someone's going to be like, "You're wait, what? No more Midwest Conservation Dogs? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, there, You know, there was multiple reasons behind uh, the name change. Part of it, you know, the more, even though I've been in this for a short number of years, the more I started connecting with others as far as like people wanting to get into the work with their own dogs or um, potential project partners or people that were helping us with projects, the more that network started to just naturally, you know, layer out, I was like, holy crap, this is a bigger thing than just the Midwest, right? So, and admittedly, when we set up Midwest Conservation Dogs at that time, I was still doing my daily corporate grind a little bit. So strategically, I was like, I can travel a little bit, but I can't be, you know, undertaking a larger scale for projects. So, um, so the, the natural growth that's starting to happen was one big constant cue to me. Like there's, this is something larger, right? Um, obviously the work that the dogs are doing as well, you know, is, is something bigger than, you know, the little bumblebee nest. So some of that just emotional, you know, connection and response and interconnectedness. Um, in addition, you know, one great thing that came out of the pandemic for us was we had a lot of office time last year and, uh, we hired on a development consultant to really help us focus on the growth of the organization. Um, so going through that process, we did our very first ever five-year strategic plan, uh, bringing in all sorts of people to you know have eyeballs on this process, and did a really deep, like a really deep dive. That was my first time doing that from you know being in the nucleus of a strategic plan. I was always on the outside, like, hey, and we're doing this now. And you're like, okay. Um, so having that additional input and ideas from that, it was like a 10-day long process. We did it all virtually, which was really fun. We came down to um, expanding our services, expanding our hearts a little bit as well, and then also giving back to the community. And I did have these, I don't dream a lot, like literally when I'm sleeping, but like I remember waking up during this process and I was like, this is like a collective, right? Like conservation dog collective. How cool would that be, right? To really share the love and joy that we're the for the work that we're doing, but share that with people beyond the Midwest, right? And do it in a more formal sense and you know, strategically, of course. Mm-hmm. So, oh, so yeah, the name was born, you know, about a year ago 
today. Um, and then we went through all the process of doing the rebrand, you know, and aligning everything and launched on Earth Day of this year. Okay, cool. So so what does the Conservation Dogs Collective kind of encompass now then? Because you, you mentioned quite a few things that you're trying to achieve in there strategically. So what is it, you know, as an organization you actually kind of do day to day now? And who's in the organization? Yeah. Who's there with you? Sure. So I'll start with who's here with us. So we have a board of directors that consists of seven different people. They are throughout the United States. Um, they, oh gosh, they're they're multi-talented. So we've got some all of them, though, love dogs. That's like one of the common denominators, right? They love dogs, but they have a bunch of different skill sets and passions, you know, professionally. Um, our internal team, our staff, we have a program coordinator, Lindsay. We have a director of communications um, named Tracy. She's the she's the words behind the rebrand, to be honest. <laughs> um, and then we have one, two, three, we actually have four no, we have five canine keeper teams. I always forget myself, right? Because I'm in the driver's seat a lot. Um, we have four canine keeper teams outside of myself. Two are in Indiana. Um, two are in Wisconsin. And the fifth one is in the UP, the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Um, and beyond that, we have a pretty nice network of volunteers. We're hoping to expand that now, you know, when, I should say, when we can get back out in the world more, you know, safely and consistently. Um, so that's our team that, you know, the, the feet on the ground, um, as far as what we do as an organization, we do obviously provide the canine conservation detection services with our finder keeper teams. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, with the rebrand, one of the biggest differences that people would see if they saw Midwest conservation dogs before is that we're very centered on putting the dogs in the spotlight. So like lots of shots, you know, bios about the dogs. Um, and even as so far as to dedicate a section of our website for pet owners, right? Or just people that love dogs. So we have a resources page that explains, you know, things such as the, you know, science behind canine olfaction, but all the way down to like, why is my dog eating poop and rolling in grass and, you know, like all that kind of stuff. So a lot more dedicated um, attention towards that main demographic of people in the world, right? Mm-hmm. And I consider that a really great gateway to attract people that might be either intimidated by detection dogs in general, right? Or they've never heard of it like I did the first time I was sniffing around. So that's some some things that we do. Yeah, no, that's cool. And it, it is interesting, actually. I suppose it's always one of those things when you work in something, you kind of, and you live and breathe it all the time. And anybody says to you, oh, conservation dog, you know, what's, what's that? And, and, I, and I get that on a daily basis. And I'm sort of, Really? Really? They can do that? <laughs> what? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Or or from my, from my perspective, is you, you haven't heard of that? You know, that's all I hear every time I turn around. It's <laughs> right. You know, so I suppose it's what you dial into, isn't it? And, and that's and then what what world you live in. Um, to touch briefly, and I'm interested to know, so you call your teams finders and keepers, which I love, by the way. I think that's awesome. Um, it's probably one of those ones that either came to you in the night or took an awful lot of time, careful time to think of. Um, and obviously with the road guys, they use you know, bounders and, uh, and that kind of thing. So when I was talking to Heath Smith, um, yeah, we were discussing why you know they wanted to move away from that sort of traditional handler dog you know, description. So why did you guys want to move away from that? Yeah, the main reason behind that, categorization or labels um 
It's because of the bond between the dog and the human, right? Like everybody knows what that feels like if they've shared their life with a dog. So that is at the core of find your keeper <laughs> um, universe. Beyond that, I mean, somewhat, you know, kitschy, but also explanatory is like the dogs are the ones that find the stuff, right? And we are the keepers of those finders. So we make sure that they're well cared for emotionally and physically and everything in between. So, yeah. Yeah. And that's what I liked about that one, actually. You know, like you say, it is a little kitschy, but it does what it says on the tin. And, and, yep. and that's what I, and that's what I sort of like about it. And that's what, that's always been my issue with the kind of the traditional handler kind of model is like, yeah, that's not the way I work. I mean, I know a lot of people do, but it's not, the way I work, so it's not an, not really an accurate description, and it's splitting hairs. I mean, you know, I mean, who cares in some way? Right. But you know, it's <laughs> it's not I really, think, yeah, what you're doing. Right, and I mean, I, words matter, and that's one of the things that I have really learned professionally. You know, after I graduate, I'm like, the use of words can be very powerful, and when you're having conversations with colleagues or potential people that are going to come into a particular field, whatever it is, you know, if you can communicate with precision, you know, um, what, what's going on. I think that's a really great opportunity. Yeah, no, that's cool. Um, okay. So, so to move on to some other cool things, so the projects you guys have been working on and been doing, so you've done stuff, you know, detecting salamanders, you know, know, wild parsnip. So let's start by talking about your first project. So what was your, what was your first one? What, and what were the challenges? Cause you came from a sport kind of nose works background. And as we know, conservation, dog detection is is very different to any other form of detection in terms of how you train, you know, the indications you need, the, you know, the work ethic you need from the dog, all that sort of stuff. So how did you kind of, you know, what was it you were looking for and how did you kind of navigate that minefield? Yeah. The first project I ever worked on was in tandem with Mequon Nature Preserve. They wanted their dogs to detect wild parsnip rosette which is an invasive plant. Um, I won't take time (laughs) here explaining why it's so nasty, uh, besides being an invasive species. Um, The challenges that we had with that is obviously it's a plant, um, and it is a dangerous plant as far as if you get the sap on your skin and then are exposed to sunlight within 24 hours unknowingly, right? Um, You can develop a third-degree burn. So challenges were obviously keeping the dogs safe as possible. Um, and then the transmission, if they had sap on their fur or whatever, you know, if they were going to transfer it over to us. So keeping the dog safe, keeping us safe. And then also completely had no idea on the first project, right? That this is a living organism. So we're training on the little rosettes. And as soon as they started to get to a certain growth phase, all the dog we had three dogs working on that project. Every single dog stopped indicating on it. And we're all like, oh, my God, you know, like you have that, like, oh, my God, the dogs are broken, right? The first dog that went out there, we're like, oh, God, what's wrong with the dog? Is is she sick or, you know, what happened? And then second dog comes out, oh, no. (laughs) So that was just a great learning moment. But in the heat of the moment, you're like, what did we do? You know, like, what did we do wrong, right? Um, So, yeah, that was a huge one. And, I mean, up front, we had set that program up to run the dogs early in the growing season. So we were not going through the big six foot tall plants, you know. Um, so that was good. We had that foresight and education around that. Um, I mean, the, another struggle, too, is we got some pushback from people that wanted to support the dogs and the work they were doing. But they were going, why do we need a dog to 
find this plant that we can see from outer space, you know, when it's fully grown. And we're like, well, you know, so we had to do a lot of education mm. with that. Yeah. And I mean, keeping invasive plants alive around the year to train the dogs on another big hurdle. So we had to find a, a local university that had a greenhouse that was also willing to let us <laughs> grow wild parsnip, mm. you know? Yeah. And allow dogs in for training because it was way easier to bring the dogs to that university, you know, just to do training inside and stuff than it was to pull it out and whatever. So. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's often the big problem, isn't it? It's, it's just the, the, the mechanisms, you know, of, of yes. having to do it. You know, you can, you can think through the challenge, you can work out the search, you can do all of that sort of stuff, you know, you can train the dog. So often the biggest pain in the ass is getting your, your training aid. <laughs> storing those training aids in the correct manner in which they need to be stored and being able to access them and then get past, I don't know about in the US, but I mean, if we were doing that over here, we'd have to get permission from God knows what government departments to keep an invasive you right. know, plant because over here you've got what's called a general biosecurity obligation that, you know, if you, if you know you have invasive species on your land, you've got an obligation to get rid of them, whether that's flora or fauna. So, yeah. There's so much to kind of go through, you know, to there. Yeah, there are. It's all the things like <laughs> people don't really know about when they're first thinking about getting into this field too. It's like, mm. yeah, and our, our 40 permits, you know, who you know in the DNR that can give you an NR40 permit so you can grow these suckers, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and how long, did that project, yeah, how long did that project go on for and uh, what was the outcome? Yeah, we were involved, our organization was involved for two years on that project. And then the goal was always to get the on-site dog handler, there we go, right? <laughs> Finder keeper team yeah. um, trained up to a point where they were more self-sufficient and just consulting with us. Um, they are still doing the work on their property. I mean, unfortunately, they uh, butt up right against a county parks maintenance building. So they got mowers coming in that constantly are, you know, bringing in seed and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But the dog is doing a great job trying to prevent just the additional spread, you know, the satellite populations that can pop up. So yeah, still ongoing. Oh, that's great. That's great. Yeah. And so to move on from that one, what's been your favorite project that you've worked on? Oh my gosh. They're all so fun, to be honest. I learn way more <laughs> about species doing this kind of work than I ever thought. I would. Yeah. <laughs> um, God, the favorite project for me, I would say is, it's really hard, right? But I, I'm going to say the bumblebee nest work mm -hmm. that we're doing is really, really exciting and rewarding. Cool. And so let's yeah. talk about that in great detail. Go. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Oh, someone's at the front door. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so many reasons why I think this is such a great project and it's really exciting to work on. Um, Knowing what I have learned over the past several years, like being able to upfront have more thought about the program, where it can go, where the potential, you know, hiccups, challenges, all that kind of stuff. You know, just that that confidence going into a new project was invaluable. So um, another one is we created the pollinator program. We didn't wait for someone to knock on our door and say like, Hey, I want you to find bumblebee nests. Um, our internal team, Amy Wagnett, um, she came to me and was like, we should get ahead of the curve on some of this stuff, right? Pollinators are a big deal. And uh, at that point we wanted to do honeybee colony detection for uh, varroa mites and other diseases. And 
we're hitting some walls with that um, from some beekeepers and others. And we shifted over to bumblebee nest detection. So we saw a couple of the publications that had been around from the UK and up in Canada. Um, and we just started reaching out to people, reaching out to entomology departments at universities, um, you know, asking for like, hey, you guys have any bumblebee nests, you know, that we can train our dogs on it. Of course, explaining like what we're going to be doing with them and our goals for the program. And we have found, honestly, that the bumblebee people are some of the nicest people on the planet Earth. Um, They're like bumblebees in human form. (laughs) Um, So, you know, the process of getting training material was about 14 months or so long as far as first point of contact and that first asked to finally getting material delivered to my house. So again, just that tenacity and confidence of like, we can do this, just keep your nose down to the grind, you know, and Mm -hmm. we'll we'll get her done, so to speak. Um, And the project partners that we have worked with. So this was our first full operational year. Um, and we worked with a PhD student at the University of Wisconsin uh, Grattan Lab and then another local nature center, uh, the Schlitz Audubon. And honestly, like after not being in the field for a year, just getting back out there with my dogs, I was like, this feels so good. You know, like it just feels amazing to get out there, mm. trust the training that you have with them, you know, and when they find a bumblebee nest in the wild, you know, it's just like, oh my God, we did it. <laughs> um, so, you know, yeah, the joy of that. It never gets old. And you know that. It's like, oh, oh yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's awesome. So, so, so what are the objectives of that? So just for people who don't know, so the importance of bumble, the importance of bees and pollinators is obviously, you know, extremely important. Why are we needing dogs to find them? You know, is this to count them? Is this so they can be protected? What What's the go? There's so many goals. I mean, part of the mystery of bumblebees in particular is that they will opportunistically make their colonies wherever they want. So just the variety of where you can find a nest, you know, it could be in someone's rafters, you know, in the house, it could be in a barn, it could be under a clump of old grass, could be underground in a rodent burrow hole. So just the efficiencies that a dog can bring to some of those situations, mm-hmm. number one, right? Um the other uh, reason, you know, some of the research papers that were out there, you know, I was like, a lot of people that I talked to, they were like, I think the dogs didn't get a fair chance at this either. You know, studying human surveyors against um, finder keeper teams and uh, our PhD student worked alongside us to develop her study design where she had a very specific size plot that she was going to have human surveyors go out and then we would be going out separately on a different day. Um, So just having a little bit more focus in that regards, um, you know, really showed off the dog's capabilities because they did find some nests. So that's great. And the humans didn't. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, we're learning along the way too. So part of it, you know, we're learning... (laughs) like we do on every project, like certain vegetation slash environmental conditions are not going to be ideal for the dogs to be working in and probably not the humans either. So really getting down to, it's almost like grits of a sandpaper. Like right now we're on like hundred grit sandpaper, you know, we're going to be honing down the use of dogs and really optimizing where they're going to be the best superstars, you know, that they can be for this particular target odor. Mm. Mm-hmm. And how are you? So, 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 as part of the training for this, how are you? I mean, obviously, you, you're getting the training aids, you know, from the bumblebee community, which is great. How are how are you sort of storing them? How are you preserving them? 
for for you know optimum use yeah you know, things like that what what are your methods yeah so we we consulted with the bumblebee gurus about this cuz i wanted to dehydrate some of the samples that i had and this one woman in particular she's like you know what as long as you have a very consistent climate that you can keep them in at room temperature. Um, She's like, that's what they have found to be the best for preserving some of the capabilities of, you know, the old, they they aren't studying the older profiles, of course, but as far as visual degradation and everything. So right now they're being kept at like between, it's usually like 55 to 65 degrees in my wine cellar down in the basement. <laughs> um, and they're in, you know, sterile you have a wine cellar. I'm not knocking it. <laughs> I'm doing some, you know, classical conditioning. I go check on my samples. I'm like, which wine do I want this evening? <laughs> um, so that's what we've been doing so far with the samples. Mm-hmm. Keep them uh, at that room temperature. Cool. And what are the dogs looking for then? Is there any particular part of that, that they're looking for? Yeah, so they're looking if you've if people that are listening have never seen a bumblebee nest, they're really kind of creepy looking. Um they they have a bunch of little cells. Um I used to call them like little pods, you know. And they they just like accumulate and kind of grow. I know people can't see me. I'm totally like one of those talkers with my hands. Um, <laughs> it almost looks like this brain, you know, <laughs> with open cups and there's you know wax and pollen um in there and uh it was, you know, as we set up the dogs for training, some of those materials came with dead bees inside of them. And I was like, we're going to take those out because I do not want my dogs finding dead bumblebees because they're going to be everywhere, you know. So it was really isolating the 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 material of the wax and cups and stuff. And it smells somewhat sweet, actually. You know, mm-hmm. I can smell it a little bit. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. And yeah. and how how careful do you need to be with those training? So you're talking about taking the bumblebees out and so on. I mean, are you being hyper, hyper, hyper careful with them? You know, single-use gloves, you know, no powder latex, you know, all of that sort of stuff? Or are you able to be a little bit more loose with those? Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I throw a variety at my dog, to be honest, as far as like some, I start in the beginning, the, you know, it's protected contact. So the materials inside of a mason jar or some other type of container item. Um, and I'll put those out once it's time to actually place them in situ in the field, then I'll use my rubber gloves, single use, you know, folding them inside out. When I pick the training aids up later, totally separate set of gloves. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and and that makes a lot of sense. Uh, it, it always interests me, though, because particularly with things like bumblebee nests, as, as you were saying before, they can be found kind of almost anywhere in any different context. You sort of want your dogs to generalize to a degree. Yes. You know, so being too precise is that – I, I wonder sometimes, and I'm just throwing it out there, whether being too clean, too precise with the training aids is a detriment rather than a benefit or not. It's, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In the in the words of one of my mentors, Ron Gone, he would be like, "Ask the dog, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, what are the results you're getting in training? Yeah, right. In yeah. field work scenarios, but yeah, I totally get what you mean. I'm not I'm not one of those people that puts gloves on to like hold the containers that has the samples and and stuff. You know, I'm kind of lazy in that regards. Um, but I am very mindful of if I am using gloves to place the aids in the environment. I'll take a clean glove and just like, you know, blot my hand around, you know, dig in the grass over here a little bit too. So it's not just bumblebee plus, you know, latex glove or nitrile glove, you know, equals the odor. 
Yeah, and but yeah. yeah, and that's kind of what I was getting at, really. That otherwise, you can't, like, if you do everything in the same way according to your protocol all the time, you can start overlaying <laughs> something in there. And so yeah. it's sort of interesting to me. I mean, I'm always playing around with these things, and it's a little bit easier for me because I kind of specialize in the invasive side of things. So the challenges I've got, I've got for example, is you know, I've got a mason jar full of foxtails. Yeah, you know, that I stick down holes for my dogs to find. You know, it's, a, it's the closest approximation I can get to a fox den. How do I retain the scent of a live fox, a stinky live fox, in those tails? So actually, you know, what I do is I've got them in the motion jar, but in there also I've got filter papers, I've got ducal gauze, I've got all that sort of stuff that effectively absorbs a lot of that odour. And then when I put the training aid back in the jar, it kind of recharges it. A bit, sure, sure. You know, yep. which is uh, you know, which is quite nice. But uh, it's uh, it's always uh, yeah, fascinating to me. I'm, yeah, I'm, I always get the name wrong. If it's Jex Tent or Jet, <laughs> you know, the tubes that come yeah. out, they came out with last mm-hmm. year. Um, we played around with those a little bit too, because I, I was also training the dogs on like, here's a variety of odor thresholds that you're probably going to encounter, right? And I was like, well, let's put this little tube in there for a couple of days and then throw it out in a hole and then we'll do a whole mass of cells over here and you know everything in between so yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and how did you go with them did you find them useful yeah you know of course i set it up a pretty <laughs> challenging <laughs> search for them i had a bunch of barn boards stacked up you know like one on top of the other and i put the tube like right in the middle of a bunch of boards and i was like let's see how this goes <laughs> i mean the dogs were totally engaged it was actually a really great search for them to work in a very small space too because mm-hmm. um, the weather conditions didn't play nice for me to be outside that particular time um but yeah it, it worked i mean they were both like yep there's bumblebee odors here somewhere i just want to locate where it is you know and of course i know where it is so i'm really waiting for precision at that point in my training like can you actually get all the way <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah yeah no that, yeah and, that, and that's really interesting that's uh yeah it's really good it, I, i'm always very envious of people that look for scat because scat always, you know, it's always, it's always just so much easier. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not knocking people looking for scat, but it, but it is from practical basis, right? Kind of Usually on the scale, e- easy end of the scale. You, know, you collect it, you can store it, you can, you know, yeah. <laughs> yes, from yeah, from samples to field deployment. Usually, it's yeah. Yeah. There's a scat. It's right yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. But I totally know what you mean. Everybody listening, we're not knocking you. We're just jealous. Yeah, That's absolutely. <laughs> entirely, entirely, thoroughly jealous. Yeah. 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 <laughs> cool. Okay. So, so what other projects stand out? So we've talked about a couple that you've done there. You know, what other, what other things really stand out for you? Yeah. So we've got um, Joe and Willow. So they're down in Indiana. Um, they are working on a threatened plant called the Hellenium virginicum. And they're working with the DNR and a couple other plant associations down there to um, get the get Willow, you know, acclimated to this incredibly hard to find plant in their region and then go out with her later this year and hopefully run into some. So that's, you know, one of those scenarios where you're training as much as you can with the dog and trying to simulate field conditions, but then you just go out and test, you know? So that's really exciting. Um, Joe's got a network of people around her that, I mean, they've gotten plants flown in from other states um, and, you know, planted them in their garden and all that good stuff to help support, um, you know, the, the development of the dog and the dog's understanding of what that plant smells like now, plus what it could smell like in the future and everywhere in between. So that's really exciting. Um, 
I'm, you know, I'm somewhat nervous because I've been there when you're trying to find, you know, like it could be there or not. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's a great project and another partnership, you know, underway to develop some future work as well. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we also have the second phase of our New Zealand mud snail project that, that's going to kick off hopefully in about three or four weeks. And that's okay. going to be me with my two dogs again. Yeah, so, so let's yeah. talk about that. What, 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 what does that entail? Mud snails. Mud snails. They're aquatic invasive species that um, they're about the size of a grain of rice. Oh, and little, they're, little uh, just, just wait. They're teeny tiny. Yeah. They The females are born pregnant with 200 babies. Um, you see where this is going. And they they really have no natural predators. So fish will eat them, but they just pass right through completely unharmed, just like a nice little car wash through the digestive system. And I mean, in the matter of a couple months, you can have an explosion of population, you know, like 2 million snails and just a couple square meters. So obviously that's a bad thing for all the reasons that invasives are bad. Um in particular, in the state of Wisconsin, there is a region, it's called the Driftless region, that has some world-class trout streams. And a lot of the fishermen and women are really worried about you know, preserving their streams from these little nasty invaders. So um, we started this project last year with the DNR and the River Alliance of Wisconsin in partnership with them. And it was mostly a proof of concept, like, can the dogs sniff New Zealand mud snails? And, you know, the answer I always give, well, if it has an odor, probably, you know, <laughs> but we did the very somewhat rushed, you know, study design, like, okay, we're going to, the stream biologists are going out next week and they're just going to pull a bunch of sediments, you know, where we know New Zealand mud snails are. And then also some sediments where they should be clear, uh, <laughs> but they're so tiny, right. They might've mm -hmm. not been found yet. So we had 85 different Mason jars, uh, delivered, uh, not mason jars, I mason jarred them, sorry, 85 gallon Ziploc bags delivered to my house. Some were only full just a little bit. Others were like half full um, from various locations, unbeknownst to me, other than they're in the Driftless region somewhere. Um, and I spent a lot of fun time during the pandemics, you know, scooping out samples into the mason jars for the dogs to run. Um, and obviously we had isolated samples to do the target odor introduction and all that good stuff and some other macroinvertebrates that I could do some uh, proofing, you know, for the dogs, which was really important because there's a lot of critters found in streams, as yeah. you might imagine, right? Yeah. And there's some native snails as well. So we were fortunate to have, which are actually really hard to find in Wisconsin, um, but we had some native snails that we could work with the dogs on, like it's this, not that, right? Um, so yeah, in November of last year, we um, hauled to a park and ride, an empty parking lot, basically, and people from around the state drove in and I set up it. I mean, for me, like a detection task, you know, it's super easy. It was like a straight line drill where you got seven mason jars and you're running the dogs up and down and, you know, they're done in like two seconds mm. saying yes or no. Um, but we found, uh, let's see, Betty White was about 75% accurate. Ernie was just a little bit lower. Um, and then, you know, after we did our debrief after that program was over and we kind of realized like, okay, we probably should have done this a different way. But we want to really test like what are the dogs, you know, detection abilities here? Like what is the future goal of using them? Is it with water sampling only uh, for yeah. presence absence, right? Versus trying to haul sediment in and you know everywhere um we did discount right away last year you know that 
putting the dogs out in the field for this project was not a realistic goal because they could easily become a vector to transport those snails. So yep. Yep. Um, we're, we're continuing on with the same, um, you know, mason jar type setup with them. Mm. But we've got three different types of stimulus sets that we're going to be studying. So one's like snails versus other stuff. Um, and then we're going to have, and within that, there's some variability as far as concentration, you know, like five snails in this one versus one mayfly or whatever in another one. So that's going to be one set of stimuli. And then we're going over to some sediment-based stimuli. And then we're going to go over to, we're kind of still talking about the third one. We might do um, like paper, you know, distilled water through paper with yep. uh, snails in that and study that too. So it's going to yeah. be a busy, busy <laughs> couple months going up again but more laboratory setting right so hmm. um that's really fun for me too it's like okay you know i'm working the dogs and i don't have to get full of ticks and get all sweaty and gross you know today so, yeah. yeah and that's what i love about projects like this one is because it's got those unique not unique but it's got those specific challenges to it that you need to kind of problem solve around yes. and you know what is the best way to get that field collection you know of samples what is that what the way of getting them preserve while they make their way to you what is the best way of you getting close to 100 percent accuracy on that right then what happens you know like is is there a time limit with these things you know if it i mean do these do these snails move around the place i, mean, I presume if you can get a million in a square meter then they kind of spread out pretty fast and yeah and how, and how are they controlled beyond that so i presume there's a time element to this as well Yes, there definitely is. And, you know, some of the known populations right now, it's going to be just an education point, you know, like posting signs or whatever, you know, like this species is in this area and we're working hard to, you know, limit the spread and all that good stuff. But these suckers can live out of the water for 30 days and <laughs> people don't, I mean, a lot of people do clean their gear when, you know, they're coming out of the water, but most people probably don't because they just don't know about you know, invasive yeah. species and spread. So, yeah. And a lot of people don't think, I mean, that they might, well-meaning, they'll have a look at their gear and kind of go, oh, yeah, it looks all right. <laughs> <laughs> looks, I mean, some of these look like a rock. And when they're in certain types of sediment, they're totally camouflaged. You really need to rinse water in there and go, like, you know, there's 50 of them. <laughs> and they're all looking at me like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. So, so on these projects, on these, I mean, particularly on the one on the bump to jump back to the bumblebee one, which is something that you were pushing for originally. You know, who's paying the bills on this? Because I mean, th this is always a challenge we've got in the conservation world, right? We're always, yeah, we want to do good stuff, okay, and we know that we have the tool to do some amazing things and so on. And but it's still a growing kind of industry. We're still validating the tool, yeah, in the eyes of the bean counters. Um, but you know, we all have to live as well so yeah. so who's paying the bills on these things how's that happen? yeah yeah so for our bumblebee project the phd student does have a budget that we worked with her on to make sure we stayed at you know a certain threshold for her um with the nature preserve that we're working with they luckily they're close enough where i'm like we'll just charge you an hourly rate you know i'm there for three or four hours max so they're just getting hourly rate plus mileage reimbursement um it's hard, right? It's it's really hard to ask people for money for something that they've never seen before or ever heard before. So it's truly doing some education up front about 
here, you know, here are actual studies of the dogs in the world of conservation doing great things. Um, but it's also a little bit of, you know what, if you're not willing to pay for it, we're not going to be spending the time on it. Right. And it's a little bit of balance as far as like, what is the, what is the long-term partnership potentially looking like, you know, for this various project? Um, So it's, it's just a little bit of, you know, assessment and honesty because the getting the pollinator program up and off the ground was a lot of volunteer hours, you know, like we weren't getting paid by anybody to do any of that. And we did some applying for grants as well. And we got some funding, but it surely wasn't, you know, <laughs> wasn't paying a hundred percent of a paycheck. So no, no yeah, no, it's, exactly. it's tough. Yeah. yeah. So, yep. so, so with a team to support, I mean, how are, I mean, are you doing a, a bit of pet, pet dog stuff still on the side and things like that? You know, I mean, you, yep. you, you've got mouths to feed. So, yeah, I got some side hustles as I call them. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I pulled out of doing behavior based consultations at, at the beginning of this year, to be honest, okay. I was still doing it in a limited capacity last year, mostly because of pandemic and puppies and everybody was having a dog and I couldn't say no. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. yeah. I still teach canine nose work and I don't see that going anywhere anytime mm-hmm. soon. You know, it's really great to, give back and share the joy with others that are doing this with their dog. And um, it's great filler work too. So like during the high season of conservation work, I'm just like, guys, you won't see me for a month. You know, I'm still around, but we're not having classes, you know, don't worry. Your dogs won't forget what Birch is all about. Um, And then I also do a little bit of design freelance work on the side. So I still get to tap into some of that original, you know, I don't know, schooling or whatever. I still love creating stuff. So I fill that in where I need to. Um, Mm -hmm. But what the goal is like, you know, really get, (laughs) get into conservation detection as my primary source of income. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's the thing though, isn't it? I mean, there are people like yourself, there's lots of people around doing really, really great things. And there's people that could be doing incredible things if these things could be funded in some way. Cause you know, while money's a bit of a dirty word, it kind of you got to live. It's you gotta, reality. You, you, it's you've t- got to pay for things. You've got to you know do stuff. Right. So. I have to buy my dogs the things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> that yeah. they need. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And you know, yeah. yeah I so, like food just as much as them. So I know. I know. Yeah, we, we all have to eat, and uh, that's just the way it is. Um. So to touch something occurs to me when you're just talking then. Um. We're running some camps over here soon, you know, taking some people, yeah, interested people in, yeah, people who are interested in, in conservation detection. And we're doing a bit of a, you know, we'll go out and sit around a campfire for four days and, you know, just kind of run you through, you know, how you get started, things you need to think about, stuff like that. A lot of the participants in that are coming from the sport noseworks world, which I don't have a background in, you know. Um, so I'm quite interested to, to know what you think are the main differences between those those two things that's such a loaded question oh i know i know i love it no i love good (laughs) chewy questions like this i'm gonna say one of the biggest differences is gonna be i'll say the word endurance so for the for the human it's gonna be mental endurance physical endurance right somewhat social endurance Mm-hmm. You know, for those that are around you, for the dogs, kind of the same thing, right? Like yeah. physical endurance. Some dogs are just like 
screw that. It's over, you know, 68 degrees with 20% humidity. Nope. No, thanks. Right. Yeah. yeah. I'll search for two minutes, but not an hour without finding my target, you know? Mm. Yeah. So it's that endurance capacity. I think that's the biggest difference. Yeah. 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 Uh, and that's what I would have thought. I mean, very much the endurance, different terrain, like very wildly different terrains, different yes. environmental factors. Yeah. All, all of that, that stuff. stuff. Yeah. yeah Sitting yeah. in your car, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it, you know, pulling ticks off of you. Usually that doesn't happen at a trial. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 No, that's yeah. That said, you know, like part of the joy with teaching my students too is like I bring stuff that I learn in the field into mm. my classes every once in a while. So they get to do some pretty bonkers stuff on occasion. Yeah. So yeah, that's fun. Yeah. But, uh, but that's a really cool thing. Cause I'm, I'm looking at the cohort of people I've got coming through to the camp and I'm going, and I've got a couple of people there who are kind of, you know, police detection. So, you know, explosive narcotics detection. I've got a couple of people from sport nose works and I've got a couple of, you know, ecology students nice. or, or practitioners so i got a great mix there of kind of weird skill mix who's going to be really the bit that i'm really interested to see is how the guys who've done the sport nose works or the uh the explosives narcotics detection translate across into the conservation field yeah. because from my experience poles apart it's yep like, same here yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I mean i i would love to hear how it goes, yeah, you know, no, and your experience with the, the canine nose work crowd, I will tell you some of those canine nose work competitors or even just students that don't compete. Um, they're pretty amazing at mm. being able to observe their dogs and call confident alert when they think their dogs, you know, sourcing an inaccessible hide, you know, somewhere crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I hope you're pleasantly surprised yeah, 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 <laughs> with yeah. that audience, but it's yeah. totally, yeah, it's totally different than conservation detection. Yeah. 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 No, no, like I'm, I'm really looking forward to it, but that, that is one of the reasons I'm really looking forward to it. It's just going to be from my perspective, it's going to throw a bunch of, I'm hoping, you know, weird challenges, weird questions at me that I need to, that I need to answer for people and kind of go, Hmm, really? That's interesting. You know, <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs> I, I just hope I'm not too stumped too often. But <laughs> <laughs> okay. So moving on. Um, and I did give you a heads up on this question. Um, late last night. So, so, so when I'm talking to conservation dog trainers, uh, also <laughs> those of us who actually train our dogs, you know, rather than, People who may have bought in a off-the-shelf dog or, or whatever. I've decided to ask some theoretical training questions that may help some of the listeners having a similar issue. So you're the first victim for this uh, new idea of mine. So I first, yeah, yeah. So willing so, participant. Oh, willing, oh, good, good, good. I wasn't sure initially when I thought of it whether you're a victim or a willing participant. So uh, good to know you're willing. So I've got a scenario I'd like to put to you. So the scenario is. You have a dog that loves their job so much that the reinforcer is actually the continuation of the search itself. So they're not bothered by the ball, food, treat, praise, any other reward. You know, the, the primary reinforcer is the search itself. So this dog typically finds the target odor very quickly, but only gives you know a hint of an indication before moving off and keep searching. So a very, very subtle glance, change of pace, you know, all that sort of stuff. So for some reason... Maybe it's a client requirement, maybe approving a point, something like that. This subtle in indication, although not although entirely recognizable to you, isn't sufficient for a particular project. So you need that dog to offer and maintain a clear, passive, static, focused indication until released by you. 
Now, you are obviously a very strong advocate of force-free training. So how would you teach that dog to reliably maintain this indication? I have like a hundred questions that I want to ask as far as like, when did you see it pop up in the first place? So we're talking <laughs> about like this, the theoretical scenario is if you're out in the field, the dog's yep. indicating, you, but moving on very quickly. Yeah, so you've just yep. got a dog that just loves the job so much that, that it's finding it. It's in, yeah, it's, it's going, it's, it's giving you a, an indication that is recognizable to you, but it's not the indication that your client or the project for whatever reason requires. Got it. Okay. So my first line of training from here. Okay. We're here now. Great. Now, <laughs> now what? Right. I'm going back and I'm doing some shaping exercises for approximations of staying at source. And that might just be for a blip of a second at first. Um, I would ha- very likely have the dog. If I'm outside, that dog's going to be on a lead. Um, if I'm inside, might be in a small training area. So we're limiting the you know, we're controlling the environment, right, to set the stage. So controlling the antecedents so we get the behavior that we desire, which is just a little bit of a pause in the beginning, right? And then, uh, you know, I would do some back chaining potentially of, uh, you know, sit, whatever, stand, sit down, whatever it is, right, um, in the presence of odor. Um, making sure, however, that outside of the context of detection that that dog has that skill as a core competency before I fold it in. So if the dog does not have a sit-stay in its vocabulary, we're going to teach that without odor even being around, right? Um, And just work on as the dog is ready, right? Working on those approximations until, I don't know, I mean, really, I would say five seconds would be plenty good, you know, Mm -hmm. if we had a dog truly like that. Um, but then, you know, of course, as the training plan goes, I would be going approximations to working outside, you know, like getting as close as we can to those field work conditions that we see, we saw that behavior, um, yep. performed under. Yep. So, yep. yep. <laughs> Good answer. Good answer. Yeah. Um, and, and, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a really difficult thing. And, uh, yeah. and this one has come up, I've seen this a few times and, you know, you've just got one of those really outlier powerful dogs you know that just loves the job doesn't you know it's, it's got the variable schedule of reinforcement but really doesn't give a shit about anything else you're offering you know <laughs> really just wants to go again and so it's kind of going it check and moves off straight away it's kind of i mean i have lived this a little bit with my current young dog too mm. so i've had to had to go through this process you know yeah <laughs> and i'm like oh no because <laughs> i'm so used to my other labrador that i'm like he'll stay there and be like just you know it's right here come on over whenever you're ready <laughs> <laughs> and he's like found it okay we're gonna go find another one okay bye and i don't care you could be throwing a steak in my face you know or whatever it is and mm. yeah so, so, so what, what breed is that dog that you were having that challenge with both both of them are labrador retrievers and i wouldn't even call it a challenge it was more of like holy crap i did not expect right Mm. um this behavior to really manifest this way yeah and that's simply my own reinforcement history that i had working with my previous dogs and even the student body that i have i'm like i've really never had a dog that decided Mm. that this was what truly was motivating for her yeah so yeah Yeah. and it's one of those interesting things and the reason i bring it up is actually i mean this is a live challenge that i that i have with one of my dogs and 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 i've i've resolved i mean with with my two dogs i've had it with both of them and they're both high powered driven spaniels yeah field spaniels (laughs) um and they will go and they will go and go and go and they just love and they just love their job um the first one i was able to discover a high value 
reward for it. So I discovered that if I got a rabbit and I, you know, or I got rabbit fur, either from the rabbit or bought rabbit fur, and I wrapped a tennis ball and effectively made a little pocket rabbit, that dog, yes. you know, that, that was a higher, you know, of higher value to that particular dog. So that was good. So I was able to find, I was able to, over a lot of time and a lot of experimentation, find a higher value reinforcer than the actual search itself for that dog. The other dog, no. Nah. <laughs> it's, you know, no. Nah. <laughs> so, so, Let's what, try. Yeah. <laughs> so, 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 so with that one, you know, I, I've, I've shaped a, and then this is a dog that actually works out of sight from me quite a lot. So I need, you know, quite a lengthy, you know, indication. So, so what I've done with him is I've basically built in the down, the downstay, because there's no way he's going to sit or stand, you know, the energy just kind of bursts out of him. He just can't Permeate. do it. <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. So, so, so he does the down. And I've also built in an audible now. So it's a particular bark that if I know, you know, I've taught him to do three. So three barks. Bang, bang, bang. And I can actually, if I'm far away from him, if I'm, you know, half a kilometer away from him, I can actually mark that the instant I hear they bark on the GPS. Sure. And then yes, that's where tools are very nice yeah, like that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, it, and it gives me a backup so that even if, I mean, and I'm, I'm still hoping he's going to hold that down until I get there. And I've trained him and I've used a fair bit of negative reinforcement, you know, to yeah, very, very, very subtly, but to really try and, teach him that I want him to stay and I want him to hold that duration and actually try and build up a little bit more passion so that when he is released off for the search again, then he's getting even more dopamine and so on, you know, than he would be if he just went off by himself. Um, But yeah, you know, I I like having a little bit of the backup of the audible. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I like that. But but the reason I raise it is that that sometimes, you know, that's the way you need to think about these things when you're in the sort of the sort of work that we do you know sometimes a a a standard sit stay indication for whatever reason isn't appropriate just environmentally or whatever just doesn't work right and so people operating in this field you know they need to be able to puzzle through these challenges and shape different indications and yeah i was very interested you know particularly because you are such a strong advocate of the force-free training, you know, how you do that without, you know, using any form of aversives or, you know, anything like that. So that's yeah, why I, I mean, I, I would be lying if it's not, I mean, if it is a hundred percent positive. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, like yeah. there is no, I'm sorry. Like there is no a hundred percent, but it's no. as much as we can. Right. Yeah. 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 And, and that's what I was interested in really. And, and it, mm-hmm. it wasn't to sort of trip, you know, trip you up or anything like that, but it was a case mm-hmm. of, you know, if you can tell me how to, how to do that using only positive reinforcement, then you're my guru forever. <laughs> that's you know, awesome. So yeah, no, that's cool. Okay, so one final question before we finish up: Who do you admire out working in the world, the world of conservation dogs at the moment? Apart from me, my—I mean, obviously. <laughs> obviously. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! See, that's more of a surprise question. Even though I listened to your podcast episodes, I knew it was coming. <laughs> I can't, you know, I can't isolate out one individual or even one organization um rather the the mannerisms and behaviors of some organizations right so Mm -hmm. the ones that are truly out there showing wholeheartedly what this work is like you know how hard it really is to do 
um, and also, you know, sharing the successes and all that kind of stuff that, that integrity of the organizations that are, that are in line with, you know, treating this as a professional career. Mm -hmm. Um, I have total, you know, cheers, hat tip, all that good stuff to them. And they're all over the world, you know? Um, yeah. So like who? Okay. We'll start in, uh, (laughs) we'll start on the West coast. We got rogue detection Mm -hmm. teams. Um, got, I always say it wrong because uh, my dad's from Iowa, Chiron K-9, so Paul yeah. Bunker, you know, and his got his crew around him um, and even like the partnerships with Nathan Hall that he's doing, you know, even, you know, this is like, now we could totally take this answer somewhere else. Um, Go for it. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I mean, there's so many people that, you know, on the research side of things too, that want to work with conservation dogs. I'm like, whoever you are out there besides the people I know, <laughs> please reach out to whoever mm. inspires you, you know, cause we, some of us in the conservation world working with dogs are dog trainers, you know, like myself, I'm like, yeah. I am not an ecologist. I do not play one on TV yeah. <laughs> and I don't really have aspirations to get that type of education mm. formally. Um, so, you know, people that want to partner with us, they know their strengths and how they can complement the work we're doing. Um, okay. Let's go back to the, the dog organization. So we got um, canine conservationists. That's Kayla Fratt. She just popped up and got her 501c3 recently, which is awesome. Um, we got working dogs for conservation. I mean, to me, they like paved, you know, the way mm. for me when I was first getting into this field, they did some mentorship stuff with me and others. They're doing amazing work around the world too. Um, some of the lesser known, the uh, science dogs of New England up in the state of Maine, um, Lindsay Ware's up there doing some really great work. And we've got um, the New York, New Jersey Trail with their, you know, detection dog Dia and Fagan, if I'm getting that right. I'm like, now this is a memory test for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Obviously, over in the UK, we've got Louise and her network yeah. of great people over there. Um, the Australian, Asian, you know, groups down there. We've I can't remember the names of all those folks no, down there but you know sorry. you don't have to remember us we're we're, like, we're, oh. we're an afterthought on part of the world anyway down here so. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um but there's a, i mean there's a lot of people doing it right out yeah. there cool yeah cool yep awesome right i'm gonna let you go so laura look thanks very much for taking the time to chat it's been really nice meeting you really nice talking to you i've had a great time yeah. so if people are interested in learning more about your work and potentially donating and supporting your work and doing all of that good stuff. How should they do that? Easiest way is to go to our website, conservationdogscollective.org. Everything you need to know is there, at least for a springboard. Um, Social links are there. Donate page is there. You know, sign up for our nosy newsletter about the dogs, what they're doing in the field. Yeah. Awesome. And we'd love to have you back on the, on the show again in the future. Talk about some of the other cool stuff you're doing. If you're happy to do that. For sure. Yeah. I'd be happy to. Yeah. Great. Look, really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks very much. I'll let you get back to your wine cellar. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Conservation Canine Podcast. If you've enjoyed the show, please like, share and subscribe wherever you find us. Conservation Dogs Collective.